Let's open up the Gospel of Luke, where we are journeying through this school year. Today we will be in Luke chapter 18. There will be two passages that we look at in contrast today, which will then bring even further, further contrast next week, Pastor Christian. We will begin in verse 15. Even as Pastor Christian prayed this morning, this is the passage we will begin with this morning. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that is Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is not one of you who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is God's word. We praise him for it. It will accomplish its purposes and may we um, be doers of it. So in these chapters of Luke, we have been confronting a lot of our passages have been either Jesus teaching his disciples or Jesus confronting the Pharisees, the religious leaders. But there's many more encounters that are here in the Gospel of Luke. If we look back just on this couple chapters, chapter 17, there's 10 lepers who approached Jesus and cried out for healing. Chapter 18, there's people bringing children to Jesus that we just read. Chapter 18, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus At the end of chapter 18, there's a a blind beggar who cries out for healing from Jesus. In chapter 19, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, seeks to see Jesus. Now, many are seeking to see Jesus or to come to Jesus with a need. The ten lepers and the blind beggar are crying for healing. The children are coming for blessing. But others have different motivations, such as this rich young ruler who comes with a question. Or Zacchaeus, that we will see next week who just has a curiosity, just wants to see as he passes by. So my question here is, people are coming to Jesus for different motivations, so why are we here? 
why are you here this morning? There's many reasons not to be here today. So why are you here? Are you here for Jesus? What is motivating you? Like, get to the heart level. Is there a need in life that you just need Jesus to meet this need? Is there a question of faith that you're still just wrestling with? Or did you wake up an hour earlier and you love him and you want to know and follow him? See, needs and questions will bring us to Jesus, but loving faith will keep us knowing and following him. There's many who come to Jesus with needs and with questions, but loving him in faith will have us to know and follow him. So how are we going to respond to Jesus? How have we responded? Do you know that in chapter 17, nine of the ten lepers were healed and took off? Only one returned to worship Jesus. The passage we have today, there's a rich young ruler who comes with a question. He gets the question answered, but walks away sad. I get to do the sad one. Christian gets to do the happy party next week at the, the dinner party at Zacchaeus' house. Needs and questions may lead us to, bring us to Jesus, but only loving faith will keep us knowing and following him. So are we here for Jesus? Let's start here with this first encounter here with, with many people bringing children. And we've talked about this even in the past weeks where some of the most desperate people we've seen on the pages of Scripture in this gospel have been parents. Parents bringing sick children, demonically oppressed children, to Jesus. There's the nobleman's son in Capernaum in John 4, the widow's son in Nain in Luke 7, the daughter of Jairus, Luke 8, who dies before he even gets there, he raises from the dead, the daughter of the Canaanite woman, Matthew 15, even the dogs get the crumbs off the master's table, she said. These fervent petitions coming to Jesus, we need healing for our children who are suffering our lost. And so we want the best for our children. We give them, we provide for them, we love them, we lavish upon them. All of us would say we want them to exceed us in our standard of living. All of us want us to say exceed us in faith and faithfulness. But then they suffer in life and we can't stop it or control it. They reject their faith and walk away. And we're heartbroken, we're helpless, we're desperate. And really the only power we have is prayer. Because no action, activity, things we can do is going to change it except just pray. So how have you seen children and youth suffer in this fallen, evil world? Seen children with terminal disease, with drug addiction, later into their youth, who've been, had domestic violence, sex abuse. How have you seen children and youth reject their faith and leave the church? This is kind of a, Seth is preparing for baseball chapel here at the Salem Red Sox in just a few weeks. And you know what a good baseball stat would be if you're a batting average? Like the number of times you come up to like take a swing of the bat, if you hit it three out of ten times, that's a great average. Probably make a career of that. If someone were to do four out of ten times, bat 400, no one has done that since 1941. Ted Williams. Batted 406. If you play basketball and you shoot the three-pointer, if, if you're in the 40%, that's good. 
And so much the analytics now are like, win the game by shooting three-pointers. And if you can shoot 40%, you're doing well. So three or four out of ten is good for many of our sports. But what about children and youth in the church? According to a 2017 LifeWay study, 66% of Americans, two-thirds, between 23 and 30 years old, said they stopped attending church on a regular basis after turning 18. Take it the other way around. One-third said they stayed in church regularly after age 18. Let's not make it a statistic. Let's make it real. There's probably about 240 people who call City Light home. 80 80 of those, 80 of the 240 are children and youth. So one-third is 27 and two-thirds is 53. Are we cool with just like having 27 stay? Is that a good enough average? Just let the 53 go? See, we must become more desperate in our prayers, more devoted in discipleship of our children and our youth so they know and follow Jesus. And so when we come to the Scriptures and seeing desperate people trying to get to Jesus for their sick and demon-oppressed children, it should move us. Now, this is not a a desperate situation here. This is a joyous, Jesus is here. Let's get the children to come and get a blessing. Just have him touch them. Verse 15, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. It was customary for the elders and the scribes to pray a blessing to the children, especially on the eve of the Day of Atonement. Perhaps this is the background here. Just several weeks ago, we had child dedication up here, and there were families with five kids that we dedicated to the Lord. February 9th. This is what we prayed. We prayed for these children. Be gracious to them, God our Father. Draw them to yourself. Fill them with your spirit that they may know and love you even from this early age. We pray that you will grow them in faith, protecting them from the dangers of the childhood, the temptations of youth. We pray that each one takes hold of the eternal life to which you call and that one day each will stand before your church and profess their trust and love for Jesus Christ and saving faith. May these young ones grow to be men and women after your own heart who shine the light of Jesus in knowing and following him. I mean, I'll pray that same prayer over you, and it'll probably be a similar prayer or this, the same prayer next time we do a dedication. It's not formality. This is a fervent petition. Lord, save our kids. And in this ministry, the touch of Jesus has been powerful. Chapter 6 of Luke, all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Now we read this passage and there's a playful picture that we see. We've probably seen a picture of this in our, our children's storybook Bibles. And it's a nice scene. There's Jesus and there's little children coming around. But what is usually never in those pictures in the storybook Bibles is these grumpus disciples over to the end who are now barking to tell these people to get away with their kids. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. I mean, that's jarring for us, but in Jesus' day, children were at the bottom of the social pyramid. In Judaism, children under 12 cannot be taught the Torah, and so to spend time with them was considered a waste. 
I mean, we love our kids, and they, I know people love their kids here, but this is even from a text of that day. Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places with men of the common people assemble, destroy a man. So this is what destroys a man. Sleeping too late, drinking wine too early, hanging out with kids, and just tearing in other places of common people. Children were not valued as they are today. We esteem our children. I've said this before, except the unborn. It's crazy. We do. It's just a weird day we live in. Like we do gender reveals, but I don't, is that going to still happen? Because I don't even know. Gender is now a question. But we worship our kids. They're the center of a universe where we make them that. We give them everything, luxuries, technologies, privileges that really only adults should have. We, we cycle life around them. This is love. I mean, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but more so in the, our parenting of this day. But on that day, children were overlooked and dismissed. And it's been a good corrective. We need to love and value children. We need to welcome them and care for them. We just don't need to idolize them. We need to worship Jesus. And right here is these children are being welcomed into Jesus. The disciples, are, they just see this rich young man here waiting in line. And let's get these children away so we get this rich young man talking to Jesus sooner. And so the disciples step in, rebuke him, rebuke them for bringing children to Jesus. We are not called to be Jesus' handlers, but to be his disciples. We are not there to help Jesus, we are there to follow Jesus. And woe to us if our advocacy for Jesus is actually oppositional to him. My question is, how might we rebuke others like this to keep them away? Are we making church only for good, clean people? That's going to rebuke others. Just stay away. You're not good enough, not clean enough. Is it only for one demographic? One demographic profile? Then it's telling others to stay away. Are we making the faith just a scholarly enterprise? Like just come learn some things? Are we making it a mystical experience? Like if you don't feel and do this, then you're not really experiencing Jesus? Now we may not say get away, but there's things that we can do that will push people away. The disciples should have already learned this lesson. Because in chapter 9, an argument arose among them as to which one was the greatest. And Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. He who is least among you all is the one who is great. Children were at the bottom of the social pyramid, and Jesus turned it upside down. These are to be least overlooked, dismissed. We don't, he turned it upside down. This is greatness, to come to God like a child. This is how we enter the kingdom of God. Jesus rebukes the rebuking disciples. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I tell this to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Luke does not record this. Matthew and Mark do. 
Jesus was indignant. It says, Mark's, I mean, Luke and Matthew do not record it, but Mark does. Mark 10, 14 says that Jesus was indignant at his disciples. Those who have left everything to follow him, he's indignant of their attitude and posture towards others. He declares the kingdom of God belongs to those such as these children. And so to enter the kingdom of God, we must be childlike. So my question to you is, what, it means, what does it mean to be childlike? Well, I held a little baby today, Liesl. See all these little kids running around? It's just, it keeps us young at heart to just have kids around. But let's put away the notion. You can talk to their parents right away. That's why they're quickly handing them off to you when they get here. The kids are not, by nature, essentially good. <coughs> Cute, adorable, just want to squishy, you just want to hold them, but by nature, are not good. That's humanism. To be childlike does not mean that they are naturally innocent and pure, but they are precious in God's sight. So we are all born into this world, even conceived with a sinful nature, totally depraved and needful of grace for salvation. We are sinners, and we need to be actually born again into God's kingdom by His Spirit with saving faith in Jesus Christ. To be childlike in faith is to be loving and trusting of God. Some of you are parents, some of you are grandparents. Having children around us is good because it teaches us, reminds us again what it means to be childlike. Children depend upon their parents. Children believe their parents. Children trust their parents. Children love their parents. I mean, this, this is the way it should be. So when they're three years old asking, why, why, why? They want to understand this world. And they're believing you what you tell them. Until they're a teenager and then they say, why not? The deep sigh of a teenage mom. The mom of a teenager. This is the sweetness of childhood. Just being in the care and protection, provision of a loving family. And so it's very grievous when that is trespassed with abuse and neglect and even exasperation. But it doesn't mean being childish. To be childish is to remain immature in ourselves. It's inappropriate for an eight-year-old to act like a four-year-old. An eight-year-old should be maturing so that the behavior doesn't become a tantrum. An eight-year-old throwing a tantrum is a problem. That's childish. An 18-year-old being irresponsible like an eight-year-old is a problem. So when I was wise, I spoke. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. To be childish is to remain immature and ultimately more selfish. So to be like a child does not, that's not, we are always to be growing and changing, maturing, but always childlike. If we're not growing and maturing, we're actually staying childish and are becoming more selfish. To be childlike is to remain dependent and trustful of God. 
So that's my question. Are you childlike before God? Do you believe Him? You trust Him, depend on Him. He protects, provides. You're just in the family. This sequence of events recorded here is also in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10. All three of these Gospels, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record children coming to Jesus and then this rich young ruler, back to back. Do not miss the contrast. Children coming, the people bringing them, parents, grandparents, others, want a blessing. They are needful. They are dependent. And this is how we're to enter the kingdom of God. This is very illustrative. Being like a child. A rich young ruler comes wanting an answer. Self-sufficient, proud and of himself, but kind of curious by this good teacher. And he has a very similar question. He just phrases it differently. How do we enter into eternal life? So Jesus has just taught us this is how you come into the kingdom of God like a child. And now comes this man who's been waiting in the wings. Now has the question now. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the ruler asked him, verse 18, Who is this person? Never learn his name. And if we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke from those different chapters, Matthew 19 and Mark 10, we get different characteristics. In Matthew, we are told that he's young. Luke here tells us that he's a ruler with some socio-political status. They tell us that he's wealthy. So we put those together and we call him the rich young ruler. He probably was not a synagogue ruler since he was young. An older man would have held that office, but he's probably influential, wealthy, probably a civic leader. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 10, Mark records that he ran up to Jesus and knelt before Jesus. I don't see any other Pharisees doing that. So I don't, see, I don't think he's trying to trap Jesus. There's probably a bit of sincere flattery. That's probably how he got his wealth. He knows how to work a room. He knows situational dynamics, relational dynamics. So he's going to... But isn't it very odd that he kneels before this small town carpenter from Nazareth? An itinerant teacher, a miracle worker. But he comes with respect and reverence. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's think about that today. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Are you thinking of life after death? When we sing a rock of angels, we soar to worlds unknown, we go to be with Christ? Do, do, you, do we think of life beyond death? Do you ever wonder about what happens at the moment you breathe your last? Your heartbeat stops. See, we're all in different places of life, different backgrounds, different, different socioeconomics, ethnicities, vocations, but we all die. Death is the great equalizer of us all. There is no one who will not die. So the question we then ask, is this all there is or is there life after death? And the wise person will ask, if there's life after death, does something need to happen in this life so I can get there? 
whatever there is. Do you believe in life after death? If you're a naturalist or an atheist, true to your philosophy, you would say no. We've hit the jackpot, evolutionarily speaking, you would say. This is amazing. Organic life evolved out of the inorganic matter. A single cell evolved in complex beings. Our conscious personhood right now is happening out of signals firing off in our nervous system. I mean, if that's all our existence is, it's just this amazing evolutionary lottery ticket that we hit, and yet there's nothing beyond? I'll ask you again, why are you even here? Don't be here. I mean, if there's nothing beyond life, man, life is too short. Get out there, live it up, eat, drink, be merry. If there's nothing beyond, what's restraining you? If Morality is just a social construct. If religion is just an opiate for the people, why are you even here? But I would say most all of us, all of us, I would say for even here, we have a question like the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't think he's trying to test or trap Jesus. I think he's really sincere. He's got a reverent posture as recorded by Mark. He's successful in life. And he seems humble. He's just, he just wants to secure. He's, he's, got, he's, got it, he's got this life down. This life is secure. Let me know how I can steer the next life. We would probably like this guy. We would want to be friends with this guy. I mean, we would be envious of what he had, but we'd want to get to know him. We'd respect him. We like people who achieve in life and are also humble at the same time. This is a good guy. And so we ask, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But do you hear the presuppositions even in his question? People are classified as good or bad. It's not just teacher. He's going to like a good teacher. And that people can inherit eternal life by what they do. He's giving us a lot of information about his, his worldview, his presuppositions of life, just in these short words. But did we hear it? That people are either good or bad, and that we can get eternal life by what we do. He's not scheming, he's sincere. He doesn't seem disingenuous. He seems devoted in his pursuit of this question. But this is often how we look at life. We put people in two buckets, good person, bad person. First impressions, first 10 seconds. Ah, good person, bad person. And I can do whatever I need to do to get wherever I need to get. Listen to Jesus in verse 19. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Jesus answers a question with a question, as he often does, but he's aiming for the heart. See, Jesus has been called teacher all through the Gospels. Here's the only time he's been called good teacher. And Jesus perks up. This guy's giving him information. 
just by how he addresses him. And Jesus is going to seize on this, this presupposition, this hidden rule that this man is now given, he's now revealed. Goodness is achieved. <clears throat> Some people achieve goodness, others do not. It depends on what they do. What do you believe about goodness? Do you believe people are born good? Do you believe goodness is something that we can accomplish and achieve? To these two questions, are we born good and do you believe goodness is achievable? That will reveal your worldview, maybe even how you read the Bible. And Jesus answers the question with the question, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. There's so much happening here. He calls Jesus good teacher. He says no one is good except God. Ah, oh, there's a messianic secret right there in front of this guy. This is God, good God, because no one is good except God. This is good God in the flesh before this man who's addressed him as good teacher. And Jesus is conversing with him. There's a lesson of evangelism here. There's a lesson just really just in relationships here. Listen to people. They're going to give you more than you really think they are. Just in the words they use, the way they phrase it, they're going to show you their worldview. And then from there, you can meet them where they are and then converse with them and even confront them with biblical truth. This isn't a, a one-size-fits-all, here's, 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 here's the gospel. It's, what do you believe? And then let's, here's the truth of who God is, and this is the good news that will be proclaimed. Engaging others where they are in their worldview. Jesus is the good teacher. No one is good except God. Here's the question. Who's going to recognize him as divine, God in the flesh? Who do you say he is? All right, you're good. There's a notion of goodness. Jesus is going to point back to the law. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. These are the Ten Commandments. This is the law. And life is promised for obedience. Deuteronomy 30, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Listen to this. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, then I will, that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live. Life and death, good and evil. If you obey, you have life and goodness. See, Jesus is asking him a question without even asking a question. Have you obeyed the law? And in verse 21, look at what the rich young ruler says. All these I have kept from my youth. It's an impulse. Yes, I've obeyed. 
The law was the norm of his life. He's confident that he had kept its demands. This isn't a pompous pride. This isn't some arrogant guy. He's just very misguided. He's blinded by his own view of goodness of himself. He's a good guy. We're good people. Many of us are. Are you a good person? See, this is the story of my life. I was a good kid. Firstborn, so all you psychology folks can fill in the dots there. Perfectionist, went to church. Teacher's pet, straight A student, most likely to succeed, valedictorian, good little moralist, never drink or smoke, haven't smoked yet. Um, church planning didn't drive that to me. <laughs> I, I never got into trouble. I was the kid you'd want to be the parent of. It was easy. But the haunting question for me, even through my teen years, is how good is good enough? I mean, I, I, I feel for this guy. You feel like you're good enough? But then the question is, how good is good enough? I mean, I feel like I've, I've kept the law. But what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Are you a good person? Are you that older son in the parable or the, the prodigal son? You, you were dutiful. You, you've stayed at home. You've taken care of the father's affairs. I'm not really sure I need grace. I've been here. I've been doing it. But I don't know if good is good enough. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Jesus is not here to shame the man. He's earnest, but he's ignorant. He's sincere, but misguided. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost. This isn't just the irreligious bad people that need saving. It's the religious good people need to repent of their pride, repent of their goodness, and come to saving faith. Have you ever heard anybody say that to you? Some of you may need to repent of your goodness. That was the break point for me in coming to understand grace. I had to repent of my goodness. Not that I don't want to Love others, but I, I'm not saved by my goodness. Jesus calls him to discipleship. Sell everything. Give to the poor. Follow me. See, this is the answer to the question. This is not a universal command to sell everything. Everyone has to sell everything. This isn't a requirement for all followers. Jesus is aiming at this guy's heart, and for this guy to follow him, let it all go and come follow me. To the question of eternal life, the answer is not the command to sell all, but the call to follow Jesus. The imperative, the requirement for all followers of Jesus is to have a first love, whole life devotion to Jesus. Is there anything keeping you from following Jesus? That's what Jesus is going to aim at. And for this man, it was his wealth because he was extremely wealthy. 
Is there anything in your life that you're trying to hold on to and just greater allegiance to than Jesus? There's going to come a conviction by the Holy Spirit calling for repentance. This man thought he was a good law keeper, but he was an idolater. There's a heart issue here, and Jesus nails just his love of wealth. This is the one thing that he lacks. He can't self-sacrifice everything and follow Jesus. There's others, Peter, Andrew, John, James. They left everything and followed Jesus. Levi left the tax booth and followed Jesus. The call to follow Jesus, this man had a call from Jesus, and he just walked away. He was confident he kept the law, but his heart was now exposed. So what one person has written is that he's lived in perpetual transgression of the first commandment against having no other gods before the true God. Not only that, but the man's great wealth prevented the helpless childlike dependence which Jesus had just said was necessary for kingdom entrance. Come like a child to me. Depend upon me. Follow me. Believe me. Let me provide for you, protect you, lead you. But this successful man couldn't surrender. Jesus is always asking us to put away gods, whether they be possessions or position or power or passion. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. It's said in the other Gospels that Jesus loved him. Jesus is not out here to shame this good guy. Jesus loved him, but this man's wealth made him so sad because he was unwilling to forfeit it. He was trying to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Money is not evil, but the trappings of it are extreme. God, make me like Abraham. God, make me like Boaz, David, Lydia, Joseph of Arimathea. God, just give me wealth and I will use it. The lines will fall for us in pleasant places. Are we using what he's giving for his glory? And if for some there is going to be more wealth in their portfolio, but there's going to be other wealthy folks such as Solomon who become ungodly. Ecclesiastes 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Hebrews 13, keep your life free from love of money and be content. 1 Timothy 6, I think the Bible has something to say about money. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with great pangs. The Bible speaks a lot about money. And it's love of money. Money is, is a tool. It can be used, it can be misused. But the love of it will cause many to even walk away from the faith. Here is God in the flesh. Good God in the flesh. He is God who alone is good. The creator of all things is here before him asking him to follow. And he loves his money more. It's a sad scene. This is going to be a sad scene on Judgment Day. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? See, Jesus is the good teacher. No one is good except God. None of us have kept the law. And then we should be like those who just heard this and just say, then who can be saved? And this is the teaching moment here. Everyone's watching. We've already seen this, this beautiful interaction with children. And now we've got this tense interaction with this rich young ruler. And there's a sadness and confusion here. He's commended the children, and now the rich young ruler is leaving. We say that goodness is evidenced in obedience. This is the teaching of Scripture. Eternal life is promised for obedience. How does one come to eternal life? Obey. None of us have. Then how can we have eternal life? No one is good except God. No one of us is good enough to obey enough to inherit eternal life. And that's what finally broke me. How good is good enough? And I realized my good enough was never good enough. So my chasing of being good enough had to be repented of. Then who can be saved? Ah, but verse 27. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Not plausible. It is possible. It is done by the power of God. It is impossible for us to be good enough, to obey enough. We are all sinful. We cannot save ourselves or be good enough to inherit eternal life. It is only God who is good, and through Him all things are possible. And you know what is possible with God? He sent His beloved Son, eternal Son of God, and the triune community came in human flesh and dwelt among us? That's possible? Yes, conceived by a virgin, born of Mary, in obscurity, in poverty, God came to this world. It's the fairy tale that's true. I promised to get off talking, but I mean, it's the you catastrophe. Everything's falling apart. And then this moment turns. And God is born into this world. It's the moment when we think it's all is done. We followed him and now he's crucified and beaten on a cross. Crying out words we don't understand. And he yells out, it is finished? We don't understand it, but in that moment, it's all turned around. And victory comes in seeming defeat. This is the good news of Jesus, the good teacher, God in the flesh. He's come to us, lived perfectly before us. None of us have kept the law, but he came and fulfilled it by obeying it all. Sinning not. No sin upon this man, God in the flesh. But according to Deuteronomy, if you obey, you get life. If you disobey, you get death. And he flipped it. He who had no sin took our sin that we might know the righteousness of God, that we might be forgiven of God. And this was a good death. Judgment for our sin, the once for all sacrifice for our sin. This is his victory, the cross. 
This is his procession, the empty grave where he rose again from the dead. This is the good news of our good God. And do you believe it? You are not good enough. And the good teacher we come to is actually God. And this is the messianic secret now revealed. He is the Savior. And it changes life and gives eternal life. Peter pipes up. Verse 28. See, we've left our homes. We've followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is not one of you who have left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many more times in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Peter's trying to make sure, are we in on this? Did you see what we did? We have left. This doesn't mean you abandon your marriage. This doesn't mean you neglect your kids. This means that Jesus becomes first. We talked about that when you... There's no other loves before him or above him. But my question is, are we here for Jesus? My, what is motivating you here? Do you have a need? He'll meet you in that need. He will meet you in the need. But nine of the ten lepers there in chapter 17 got what they needed and left. Are you just going to get what you need? Are you going to be here until life kind of settles down a bit and then be back out? And then come back when you have another need. I mean, Jesus always meets, our, he meets us where we are. Do you have a question? Will we get our question answered? Or will we walk away like the rich young ruler? Needs and questions may bring us to Jesus, but only those with childlike faith will enter the kingdom of God. Needs and questions bring many to Jesus, but only those with childlike faith enter the kingdom of God. Are we here for Jesus? Are we just here for the blessing? Are we here for the blessed one? Jesus is our reward. He knows us. He blesses us beyond our me any measure. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. The glories that are prepared for us, they're blessing upon blessing. If we could see it, it would change. I mean, if we could just get a glimpse... It would change everything, but that's why it's called faith. That's why we walk by faith. But if we're just trying to get there to the blessing, we won't get there because Jesus is our word. The only reason it's blessed is because Jesus is there. And Jesus is here by His Spirit. And so do we know and follow Him? Do we love Jesus above all and before all? And this is the way that we will shine the light of the gospel. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. This rich young man walked away. There's a rich man next week who's going to throw a party and welcome him into his house. It's not rich or poor. God will save the rich man Zacchaeus. But this rich young man, at least in this passage, oh my goodness, I hope that the news of this risen Savior got around to this man and he came to faith later. Could you imagine if he could just if he's, if he's there in glory now because he came to faith later, all we have here is just a man without a name who walks away. Look, those who have ears, let us hear. Let's pray.